Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion, news, views, and counter-apologetics for those who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy Bean. In the studio with me are my friends David Fletcher. What's up? And Luke Galen. Hi. Also, we have a special guest with us today in the studio, Rob St. Mary, a filmmaker, a local artist here in Grand Rapids. Hello, gentlemen, and hello, listeners of Reasonable Doubts. We're going to interview Rob later on the show to talk about his new documentary, The Separation on State Street. But first, we're going to jump into the news. On the news for this week, we're going to be talking about a subject that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, Buddhism. Buddhism is generally uh, not on our radar as much as many Christian sects. However, it is a fascinating religion. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot about it more in upcoming episodes. At the moment, what brings Buddhism to our attention is a potentially controversial statement by the Dalai Lama uh, that he will be personally appointing his own successor. Why is this controversial? Well, Tibetan Buddhism's tradition is that the Dalai Lama reincarnates, that there's an unbroken chain of succession through reincarnation that links the current Dalai Lama and all future Dalai Lamas back to the very first. So the first Dalai Lama dies, reincarnates, and Tibetan monks using certain mystical practices locate and discover the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama and then train him from childhood to fulfill his role. Now, if the current Dalai Lama is stating that he personally will be able to appoint his successor, well, then that offers a very interesting challenge to tradition, a very severe break with tradition that has many Tibetan Buddhists debating the significance of his decision and just how to interpret it. Why would he have such a drastic break with tradition? The answer is that China this September, decided that any future appointments to the, to the role of the Dalai Lama, um, quote, must get government approval, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. The Chinese decree uh, also prevents any outside source from having influence, the article says, in the selection process of the Dalai Lama. For those of you who may not know much about Tibetan Buddhism or the conflicts between the current Dalai Lama and communist China, a real brief uh, summary of their history is that in 1951, the communist government entered into Tibet and took over their national sovereignty and eventually sent the very young Dalai Lama at the time into hiding, uh, where they set up a... Uh, in-exile government in Dhammasala, India. Ever since that time, the Dalai Lama himself and several Tibetan Buddhists as well as international activists have been putting pressure on the Chinese regimes to give back Tibet its national sovereignty, to give back their political autonomy. And, of course, the Dalai Lama has been somewhat of a... Uh, uh, internationally known icon representing that cause. He was recently acknowledged by the Bush administration or, or, or by Congress? I don't know. Something. Yeah. Acknowledged for what? Uh, for being an awesome guy. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that there was a particular reason except that um, everyone likes to jump on the Dalai Lama bandwagon every so often and uh, give him props, as it were. It's hard to give crap to the Dalai Lama. Um, he's, you know, looks like a nice, gentle old man. Though uh, Penn and Teller have certainly taken a stab at it. Oh, have they really? Yeah. Uh, one of their episodes focused on the Dalai Lama as part of an autocratic uh, or theocratic, rather, dictatorship uh, and pointed out that life in Tibet wasn't all that great. To be fair, they went after Mother Teresa a lot more than Dalai Lama. But <laughs> That's true. But still, and, he was and they also went. Yeah, yeah. They were personal. They were trying to piss people off with that, no doubt. I, I think the man has certainly done a lot of respectable things. I can't get behind him on all on all points. However, one of the reasons why I find this so interesting is because it 
is undoubtedly a challenge to the way that many Tibetan Buddhists view the operation of the cosmos uh, and the authority of their own lineage. How is it that the Dalai Lama can suddenly just break with this tradition and appoint a successor when he himself has not even died and reincarnated? Would this mean that the new Dalai Lama that was appointed wouldn't have the same spiritual authority? How are we to interpret this? Well, I wasn't able to find any sort of official doctrinal clarification on how exactly Tibetan Buddhists are viewing this development. However, on democraticunderground.com, I found a very illuminating thread where people were discussing this conversation. And of course, links to that will be on our website. But here's, here's a couple of the statements that I was reading. One person in particular, let me read the comment. Choosing his successor as a political leader of his government in exile is one thing, but he cannot choose himself as a spiritual leader simply because his only possible successor is himself. Is he renouncing the absolute belief of the yellow hats, which is the reincarnation of the lamas, or is he saying that this is his last incarnation, in which case there is no successor? So a little bit of confusion, what's going on? Obviously, this seems like it's politically expedient, but also is this, is this rebuking a certain theological tradition? Does this work like, like say, a pope of the Catholic Church who can change um, Catholic dogma if he's standing from the right balcony and wearing the right slippers and all of that? Then whatever he <laughs> says is the, is the uh, word of God and must be taken as such. Is, is that how this works or is this I – can't, um, I can't answer that other than to say um, – and maybe one of our listeners can inform us by sending us an email. But – I do know from reading some of the information about the Dalai Lama that he has been very active in uh, exploring science, exploring Western philosophy, mm -hmm. and has offered many challenging statements before that would suggest he is somewhat of a reformer. But the other interpretation is that maybe he's just not going to reincarnate this time. Maybe he's going to become enlightened as the person suggested. In fact, an article I have from the Buddhist channel, which will also be linked to our website, the very title says in quotes, I may skip reincarnation this time, says the Dalai Lama, though the headline is very deceiving because the Dalai Lama actually never says that anywhere in the interview and I wasn't able to find it. Uh, it doesn't really sound like him. Well, no. the, you know, the he's clearly he's hitting off what the Chinese did with the Panchen Lama, which is like a little mini vice lama, which is that they selected their own. <coughs> that, that rather than going through the normal Tibetan exile channels of having Panchen Lamas decided the same way, find mm -hmm. the reincarnated kid, they picked their own kid and then promptly whisked him off to protective custody. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> Dalai Lama just sees the writing on the wall that they would uh, – that's what they're going to do when he dies is that simply say, oh, look, we found the – our own Dalai Lama and causing the split. And I, that's what they've reminded me of with the Catholic Church. Didn't at one point they have two popes and there was oh, a, sure. a <clears throat> war over who was the real pope and right. the church was split about that. It's, it's, I don't know if it's exactly the same thing. but Some are interpreting the spiritual implications not to be very important at all. One of the comments on this thread says that, quote, his primary commitment is to see everyone else free of suffering before he rests. That's the Bodhisattva's vow he has taken the bodhisattva, of course, meaning a future Buddha who has renounced enlightenment temporarily to come back and help the suffering. The quote continues, this Dalai Lama has lived up to this standard and personally I think he's up to the task of repelling the co-option of his religion. So it's not a problem because even if it breaks with tradition, uh, let's not be legalists to put it in a Christian framework, the true spirit behind the Dharma is to free people from suffering, and that's just what he's doing. Another rather confident interpretation of this from another person is that, well, we're not even talking about a Dalai Lama. This is just an interim leader. To quote the thread again, uh, the interim leader will be in charge of recognizing the Dalai Lama's reincarnation and perhaps helping to educate the Panchen Lama uh, if he's released from the Chinese government. The Dalai Lama will return and will lead Tibetan religion again. Picking someone to lead after his death will provide stability for the Tibetan Buddhists. So they're interpreting this as just a, I don't know if a 
deceptive move or just a clever move to uh, to forestall choosing the new. Yeah, it's a very Dalai positive Lama. spin, right? The, well, and approach it, and many of these are asserted completely with such, accurate. Yeah, many of these are asserted with a great deal of confidence. Right. Um, yet there are interpretations all over the board. Let's but as we, we see, <clears throat> let's hope we don't have more than one Dalai Lama out there because we already have a Dali the clone sheep. We don't need Dali the clone Lama. So. Oh, oh. oh, I'm usually yeah. pretty tolerant That's with the puns, but I can, then I won't tell you about my new musical about the secession, secession process selection called "Hello Dolly." It's uh, uh. based on <laughs> any. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, wow. Well, moving on. <laughs> The big song is Dama Lama Ling Dong or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I expected at least like a Bill Murray impression maybe. Yeah, that would have been nice. So uh, <laughs> I was golfing with the... He said to me, Gunga Gunga. Which means I have eternal consciousness. So, so I got to get that going for me. Got that going for me. Which is something. Nice. Nice. Well, about Dolly and all that cloning, I think we have a, another topic well, Luke inadvertently walked us into a very nice segue. Yes, in fact, uh, this coming from the Christian Newswire, the most Christian of all newswires. The Campaign for Life Coalition welcomes the news that stem cells can be created without embryos, but expresses caution. Campaign for Life Commission, uh, Coalition, I'm sorry, the CLC, Jim Hughes, the national president of the CLC, had this to say. The news of a scientific discovery from Kyoto, Japan, University Professor Shinya Yamanaka. Yamanaka? Anyone? Anyone Japanese? I'm not seeing a lot of Japanese here. Shinya Yamanaka, which was released last July concerning research being done using stem cells, which did not create and destroy embryos, was met with optimism, but serious caution. Here's their issue. It's great that they're creating stem cells out of these eggs without creating and and then destroying an embryo. But are they really not creating an embryo? Science has not yet figured that out just yet. So they're they're embracing it with cautious skepticism, which is exciting to see from the religious right. Um, <laughs> but the real question remains: Is does a uh, does a soul come into being? even when using these non-fertilized embryos. Yeah, here's my question. If your objection to using embryos for stem cell research is because each has a potential for human life, <laughs> if you can make a clone out of any cell in your body, then theoretically that they have a potential for life just as much as an embryo. What's the difference between those cells and an embryo? Right. So dandruff would be genocide. Dandruff, anytime you, yes, if you scratch yourself... You're, you're, those are precious human souls that you're killing because they right. And, and the other issue at play here is that some scientists, no doubt those evil heathen scientists, have said, "Okay, this is great, but we want to keep using embryonic stem cells too, because uh, they also have potential. We're not. They're not just saying, "All right, hey, screw the stuff we've been working on for years, and let's take on this new technology, which is being referred to as quote." the greatest invention since flying, which is not actually an invention. The airplane was an invention. Flying is something that birds do <laughs> um, and insects. But so technical. And bats. And bats. Some mammals. Some mammals, in fact, but not all birds. It should yeah. be pointed out. Yeah, we want to make sure to get that correct. The, We're not anti-flying people. The argument, but why not just use the adult stem cells so we don't have to kill anything, is sure test with adult stem cells but don't throw out the other ones that that also show potential it's like saying hey this cancer medication this looks like it could be really promising so forget that leukemia crap and 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 all of that other stuff that we've been working with for for decades they also show potential but this does and there's no risk for embryos Let's also not forget that uh, that embryonic stem cell research played a significant role in actually giving us this technology, if it's even going to work the way they said it is. Absolutely. Uh, Nick Anthes from scienceblogs.com, the scientific activist, quotes a New York Times article uh, by Cheryl Stolberg that seems to have swallowed the conservative position on this matter 
quite uncritically. Here's a quote from Cheryl Stolberg. It has been more than six years since President Bush, in the first major televised address of his presidency, drew a stark moral line against the destruction of human embryos and medical research. Since then, he has steadfastly maintained that scientists would come up with an alternative method of developing embryonic stem cells, one that did not involve killing embryos. Critics were skeptical, but now scientists in Japan and Wisconsin have apparently achieved what Mr. Bush envisioned. The White House is saying, I told you so, in a further quote that just kind of is incredibly infuriating. Bush said he drove the experiments by holding his moral ground. This is very much in accord with the president's vision from the get-go, said Carl Zinmeister, a domestic policy advisor to Mr. Bush who kept the president appraised of the work. Quote, I don't think there's any doubt that the president's drawing of lines on cloning and embryo use was a positive factor in making this come to fruition. Now, I know this is, is a podcast, so you can't see it, but my eyes are rolling. <laughs> well, the, uh, Nick Anthes in, in, uh, in his blog has a great comeback uh, um, that the major study that this is based on comes from Japan. He says, quote, maybe what the administration means is that by inhibiting an embryonic stem cell research in the U.S. to such a large degree, it all but ensured that this major breakthrough would come from overseas. And uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, you know, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> so he can uh, ban federal funding for research, but when the researcher does make a discovery in another country, he can take credit for having held the moral line. I just want to make sure I understand his, yeah, that, his reasoning correctly. I think that seems to be show. the case. Mm-hmm. And, wow. uh, and of course, they're completely ignoring the fact that scientists are not all satisfied with the potential of this technology. He quotes out in this article, again, from Science Blogs, that the, the current technology is not approved for therapeutic use. Quote, it can potentially disrupt important genes leading to complications down the line, cancer being the most likely. Mm. He shows that uh, uh, these cells appear to be totipotent, which means they are fully capable of forming embryos themselves. And as Dave pointed out, and we're right back into the ethical dilemma. Right. And, of course, these happen in spite of the ban, not because of the ban, he says. Uh, since this work would not have been possible without prior and ongoing research on human embryonic stem cells. So they're patting themselves on the back a little too quickly. Leave it to the Republicans to help out science elsewhere in the world. (laughs) However, if we don't need to use human embryos, not that I think that's a moral tragedy or anything, it would be great because at least we could get the conservative Christians off the back of this research and anything that's going to help push this forward would be absolutely wonderful. So let's let's hope in the end they will laugh about this because I think it's much much better than winning some argument on the culture war would be able to get that help to people who need it. Right. I still think it's crazy to cut off the option of embryonic stem, stem cells. No doubt. No doubt. This from the AP, Religious Scholars Mull Flying Spaghetti Monster. At the upcoming American Academy of Religions annual meeting, they will be discussing everyone's favorite made-up religion. No, not Christianity. No, not Islam. Flying Spaghetti Monsterism. Flying Spaghetti Monsterism was created by Bobby Henderson back in the day when the Kansas State School Board was uh, deciding whether or not to teach evolution or intelligent design, and it's really his open letter to the Kansas School Board, which is available on flyingspaghettimonster.com, I believe is the website, venganza.org was the original site. It's really a remarkable piece of satire right up there with Jonathan Swift's uh, modest proposal. In it, he talks about how if we're going to give equal time to ID and to evolution, then we should also give equal time to the theory that he and a reported 10 million followers uh, believe that the world was created by flying spaghetti monster. Adherents of FSM, or Pastafarianism, goes by many names, uh, dresses pirates. 
and there's a chart included in the open letter to the Kansas State School Board that it, that shows how uh, global warming has gone up as the number of pirates has decreased because, of course, the, the flying spaghetti monster is unhappy as uh, he loses adherence. Also, uh, the best part about flying spaghetti monsterism is that every Friday is a holiday, and in heaven, there's a beer volcano and a stripper factory. <laughs> Which makes it, which is way better than than seventy three virgins. Yeah, dear now, Lord. Are they immune to the problems with other religions of schism? Uh, do they have splinter churches here? There like actually the, uh, you know, are the penny splinter pasta churches. people. <laughs> or the, the rotini uh, versus uh, fettuccine debate. There's the the Alfredoans or something like that. Oh, there, okay. there are actually splinter groups of, oh. of pastafarianism. The movement to discuss flying spaghetti monsterism in a in the American Academy of of Religion was started by three students out in Florida who have been studying religion in pop culture, and of course, this would be the ultimate pop culture religion. One of the three University of Florida students who's leading the charge has said, "Flying spaghetti monsterism exhibits at least some of the traits of traditional religion, including perhaps." That deep human need to feel like there's something bigger than oneself out there. Like his glorious noodly appendage. His noodly appendage, absolutely. Good news is it's being talked about at the American Academy of Religion's annual meeting. And I'm all for discussing uh, any made-up religion you want to in in the uh, annual meeting. But the one reason why I'm a bit concerned is they're not actually trying to convert people to Pastafarianism, which, oh. which would be a worthy cause. The bad news is they're using it more as a warning sign. So the, they, they feel threatened by the Pastafarians. Absolutely. Uh, um, here's a quote from Gavin Van Horn, which is an awesome name if ever I've heard one. Quote, in a carnivalesque fashion, the flying spaghetti monster elevates the low, the bodily, the material, the inorganic, and I'd add the fun, to bring down the high, the sacred, the religious dogmatic, and the culturally authoritative. So that's their take on it. My take on it is Beer Volcano Stripper Factory. Ramen. Well, we have an interview for you today. Rob St. Mary is with us in the studio. He's here to talk to us about his documentary, The Separation on State Street. Thank you, gentlemen, for being reasonable and inviting me in. I've enjoyed the last couple of, uh, of uh, episodes and uh, look forward to tuning in the future as always. Rob is a native of our own Grand Rapids, Michigan, where this podcast is produced. He's a local artist and has been making handmade films for how many years, Rob? I started back in 1997 with a little film called Tainted. That uh, grew up in the Detroit area, and um, it was a little low-budget uh, vampire comedy uh, shot on 16-millimeter. <laughs> And uh, that was distributed by the ever-popular uh, low-budget house known as Troma, who brought you such great films really? as The Toxic Avenger, The Clash of Newcomb High, uh, Tromeo and Juliet, and <laughs> the upcoming Poultry Geist. Wow. Um, those sound like Troy McClure movies. Like, <laughs> you may have seen me in such films as <laughs> Poultry Geist. <laughs> so a uh, uh, little vampire comedy. It's kind of like Clerks meets um, a vampire film. So wow. That was tainted. Back in 1997, when I was 19, I produced that. So, And I've been working on the separation on State Street for five years, and I've done some smaller projects, uh, in little uh, sort of avant-garde video pieces and some small documentaries. So before we actually get into what your film's about, what got you interested in film in the first place? Um, I think probably my earliest uh, memory of a movie was uh, when I saw the first Star Wars film. I, all I remembered was the sound because I think I was two when I saw it. <laughs> but um, I've always had an interest in film because my mom used to take me all the time. was just uh, fascinated by it, uh, fascinated by media in general. And um, my life has sort of moved in that direction ever since I was a little kid. One of the things I did uh, in middle school was instead of doing book reports on uh, written-out book reports, I'd do them on video. 
in a wow. interview talk show format. Nice, nice. So, with my friends. Now, now, just just to connect with that previous answer, I want to see how much you actually do know about film. Ooh, Uh-oh. Star Wars episodes one, two, and three. React. Not as good as four, five, and six. All right, <laughs> close enough. Uh, were four, five, and six really that good? <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, was The Godfather Part 1 and 2 that good? The I got three words yes. for you, Jeremy. Actually, it could be just two. Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> <laughs> is that two words or three? He hyphenates. I, I, uh, uh, I, I would retort uh, with Ewoks. Just oh, two so Balls in your just, yeah, just right. had a chance to see uh, in the theater for the first time ever uh, the re-release of uh, Blade Runner. Oh yeah, the, the new nice. cut. So that was. I'm all about Blade Runner. Was yeah. very nice to see that on the big screen Absolutely. for the first time. Geeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I must admit, I, I was a Star Wars obsessed person too. Uh, but in Episode Three, the statement uh, from my point of view, you're evil during the most epic lightsaber <laughs> battle in the film. I, uh, I I decided at that point that I'd been kidding myself, and I ought to come to grips. That's that's just my opinion. So. The Separation on State Street. What's your film about? What is it about? Um, if I tell people, usually the TV Guide synopsis is a, um, a woman who runs a small shop, an interesting, peculiar, unique little shop in a uh, small town who comes across the, um, the, the county board of commissioners and the community when she decides to ask one small question. Why is the nativity scene on the courthouse lawn? during the Christmas season. Mm. And when she asks that question, all hell breaks loose, meaning everything from a business standpoint to a personal standpoint. Also, it, it gets into a perpetual, an annual debate. I, don't, I cannot think of one year, as far as I've been following news, where you haven't had someone had the same debate in some town or some mm-hmm. city everywhere in the United States. The ACLU's dreaded war on Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if this debate is going on across the nation, what's distinctive about this particular story? Is the fact that she is a very unique person in terms of her store, her family situation. This isn't a big town. This is a small town, as I was explaining to Dave before the show. This is 4,000 people living in mm-hmm. about a mile and a half, two-mile square area. They have 19 churches it's about two miles north of Detroit. It, it's your rather, you know, when you consider it to be a small town USA. Mm-hmm. And what my thought was is to take this story and see how it represents maybe all stories in many ways that you often have on this debate. Mm-hmm. But you don't get a chance to really get inside right. the heads of all these people on both sides of the issue. And one of the things that I really wanted to do, and I think I've done rather well, and we'll see when we have the screening this coming weekend here in Grand Rapids, um, is I wanted to bring it across in a way that it wouldn't be um, an advocacy piece. Mm-hmm. Sure. I just wanted to lay it out, lay out the legal case, introduce you to this person, and then let you figure out where it lays for you. Like how Michael Moore makes movies. Not necessarily. Very, very yeah. objective. No. Very, oh, no, no like actually. Oh, okay. Michael Moore's work while I enjoy it, mm-hmm. is very opinion editorial. Right. You know going in what Absolutely. what his right. purpose is, what his point is. Um, he, to me, is opinion editorial. I don't re- necessarily consider him to be a straight documentary filmmaker. Right. So this is you this know. is a more traditional yeah. uh, use of the term documentary. Yeah. Don't you think, though, when people see documentaries, that they make up their mind about whether it's biased or not, depending on how bad it makes them look? I mean, I can remember when Jesus Camp oh, sure. came out... Uh, the, you hardly see the filmmakers at all. They don't say anything. They just let mm-hmm. people talk for themselves. But still, some of the people on the Christian Pentecostal end of things were like, you made us look bad. It's biased. Yeah. Do you think that, that that would be the case with your movie too, that people would look at it depending on how it makes them look and say, you're biased? The thing that's interesting was the people who were involved in the piece who I personally don't agree with, mm-hmm. who were some of the um, – the, the more, like you were saying, the, the more right-wing, the more religious uh, people. Um, I, I had written out deals with everybody who's in the film. Sure. Everybody had to have a release. And they wanted to see their section of the film before I released it. And I sent it to them, and they sent back to me, and they said, it's great. You know, oh, you wow. didn't mischaracterize anything I said. It's all in there. 
And um, I think that's the best thing you can mm-hmm. do is to not take people out of context. Sure. You know, how the audience reacts to that, how the larger, you know, fundamentalist or Pentecostal, as we were talking about with Jesus Camp, reacts, that's on them. But see, if you talk to the lady who was in Jesus yeah, Camp, she feels, that, she she was, feels that it was a great thing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's really quite a gamble, though. If, uh, you know, an important character, and I hate using the term character to describe real people, uh, but an important person in your film turns down the release form. Uh, mm-hmm. That that could be pretty devastating for you. Yeah. But if you know that you're going to be objectionable, objectionable. <laughs> <laughs> if you know you're going to be objective, then it works out. And then you have that added bonus of saying, "Hey, look, these people saw what I was putting yeah. in, and they approved it." And, and, and that's that, great. And that's exactly the tone that I felt I had to take to work within that mm-hmm. community. You know, and and that's the way I would want things anyway, because I don't like people to tell me what to think. Or how to feel right. about things. Well, I, just, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just want things presented to me and then I can figure them out. Mm-hmm. And I think we've found in media um, there, there's a, a sense of, you know, people are too lazy to do the thinking. So let's do the thinking for them. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, or people are too lazy to feel. So let us do the feeling for them. Uh, and I don't want to do that. I completely agree with that. In fact, I, I hadn't really <coughs> thought about it before. But now that you told me that, I think that's that's absolutely right. Uh, yeah. People are lazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear more about the story. I mean, I'll, I'll show my cards. I've actually seen uh, the film already, and I liked it quite a bit. I think it, it really is a, a peculiar and fascinating story. But uh, tell us more about the, the woman who owned the shop. Okay. The... The woman who owns the shop, her name is Ananka. She goes by one name. Good and name. she runs a place called Ananka's Witch Museum. And inside of Ananka's Witch Museum, it's got sort of crystals and tarot cards and <coughs> candles and all kinds of bric-a-brac. Mm-hmm. And it comes, though, with a message where she built in the basement of the place this sort of dungeon now, if you will imagine, um, a lot of people have told me, and I've never gone, and I've only seen pictures or some video from TV, sort of like in Salem, Massachusetts, where they have sort of the, you know, the Inquisition Museums kind of thing where they talk about, you know, what happened in Salem back in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. So you would pay $5, and you'd sort of walk through this dungeon, and she'd explain to you certain scenes from history that she had researched, you know, about uh, Giles Corey, who was pressed to death with two doors from his house, you know. More weight. You know. Famous last words. And things like that. So there's all this discussion about um, religious intolerance, which is what the whole basin Mm -hmm. is about. She herself started this place and was in business for about a year, year and a half, when – as she explains it, she had these uh, law students come in who had visited from Saginaw. And Saginaw is only about a half hour um, west of where the store is, mm-hmm. half hour, 45 minutes. And they said, you know, we were going through town and just kind of wondered why this nativity scene's on the courthouse lawn. And she goes, well, that's kind of interesting. I never really thought about it. She decided to contact the county commission. The county commission, the chairwoman said, yeah, why don't you come down to the meeting that we're going to have in a couple weeks and we can explain it to you. In the interim, her lawyer put a letter together and said, you know, based on what it looks like there, it looks like it's a First Amendment violation and all this stuff. You should explain all of this. They get to the meeting, Ananka, her daughter, and her attorney, and usually during a public meeting like a city council or a county commission meeting, you're given a good five minutes. You can just Mm -hmm. say whatever you want. Usually if you're not swearing or or anything like that, they, they won't cut you off. You can say your piece. And from pretty much the word go from the testament, the testimony that we've received from several different people, several county commissioners were attacking her for the fact that she didn't uh, – she wasn't a believer. How could she question this? And they kept bringing up a lot of the – which we would now call ceremonial religion or uh, sure. secular religion in America. Mm -hmm. You know, when people ask, you know, why is it uh, a big deal to have under God in the Pledge of Allegiance or in God we trust on money? Those were the things that they brought up. They said, well, do you stand for the pledge? One person asked, well, do you use money? Because it says in God we trust on the money. Mm -hmm. There were all of these questions of secular religion 
brought up, saying that, well, if that's okay there, why is it not okay to have the nativity scene on the courthouse lawn? So a lawsuit was filed in December of 01 against the county commission in which uh, Ananka and her, her daughter uh, brought First Amendment violation for, for the nativity scene, First Amendment for they said they're stifling a free speech because mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to, to have their say, uh, several other smaller charges, and then also 14th Amendment for equal protection and due process under the law because they weren't being treated as equals because they were nonbelievers. And what I basically did is I came in about about a year after everything started to move, mm-hmm. and I had documented forward from about uh, October of '02 to the end of the court case. So it took me about five years in total. It took about three years for this thing to move through the legal system, but it took me five years in total to get the whole piece together, and now it's finally going to see the light of day. One of the parts of the film that got to me was how much pressure she was receiving from the community and uh, and even her kids being threatened at school. And You know, when you have something like this that, that puts you into the public eye, a lot of times what, what people don't understand with media attention comes, um, you know, your neighbors and other people looking at you and even people from outside the area sometimes uh, looking you up and bothering you. She had received uh, death threats from one person in town several times. Um, I called him up and wanted to talk to him, but he didn't want to talk to me. Um, (laughs) Interesting. There was um, a situation where her grandson, who was uh, Tamara, which is her daughter, Ananka's daughter, Tamara, (coughs) who was also at the meeting, who was also filing the suit, her son had to be removed from school because he would just get beat up constantly over this whole case. And he was told he had a laundry list of things that he had been told by various kids in school about how people were going to burn his house down, people were going to burn the store down, um, all of these different things. And uh, the one ironic part about that is he remarks as he's getting beaten up for this in, I think he was in fifth grade at the time. Um, His sister, who was like in high school, Mm -hmm. was getting like pats on the back and people thought she was huh. cool so right so, <laughs> by the, the like, rebellious uh, yeah so by, by the rebellious high school kids thought that his sister was a little bit uh, on the cool side because of oh, everything that was happening right. so uh, it's an interesting now dichotomy. how much of this uh, harassment was taking place before the lawsuit just with having this this shop i mean was there any problems in the community with that there was some um, and there had been some, you know, boycotts, um, some picketing, sure. as she said, uh, when they first opened. One of the guys who was, like I said, with the death threats, um, that was actually my understanding before this all happened. Wow. He was that incensed that somebody would come into town and open up a witch museum mm-hmm. when this is a Christian community and, and how dare you, you know, open up this kind of place in town. Um, as I said, it's, you know, 4,000 people in 19 churches in a very, you know, about two-mile right. square place. So, I mean, as one of the pastors I talked to in there says, it's a very churched community. And he says in the film, one of the pastors says, you know, there were three types of people in town. There were those who cared, those who didn't care, and those who didn't know what they were, what to think. Mm-hmm. Could she keep the dungeon and just relabel it a church history inquisition museum? <laughs> <laughs> Just have the same information there and saying they, they pressed, they tortured or whatever, and that's church history. And then it would be better than a witch museum. You know, I, but then I, how would you explain the New Age bookstore above it? Right. Yeah. See, I, the, the, there, was an interesting, the, there was an interesting interplay with that. I've had people who talk to me who are, um, who are atheists or agnostics who are kind of like, if she says she's an atheist, then why can't she just be an atheist? Why does she have to sort of surround mm-hmm. herself in this bric-a-brac of Wiccanism. And I go, that's not for me to answer. Right. Her daughter, when I spoke to her, was more of a spiritualist kind of person and believed in, like, palm readings and all that other stuff. I think Ananka, to some extent, maybe was coming out of that at the time. And I think that a lot of that force out of that was due to the fact of how she was treated by this group because she was reading up on more just atheist stuff because she had been supported by mm-hmm. that group. Right. You know, a lot of the um, 
the pagan community in the area who I also interview in the film, and there was more that I ended up having to cut, which may end up as extras on the DVD. Sweet. They were incensed that she would even bring this up. They were upset at her that she would open this store in that town. It was like, to them, she was hitting a wasp nest with a stick, and they were very upset with just her general tone, with just everything. They thought she was far too combative. They're like, if we lived in town, we wouldn't do this, and we wouldn't open this kind of store, and we wouldn't complain about a nativity scene, and we're not like her, and she's brought so much damage to us now because people hate us because we're Wiccans, and they think that we're in in league with Ananka. Well, and and the really tragic thing is it shouldn't matter who brought this this up to the the city commission. commission. I mean, a First Amendment-loving Christian should have and could have brought this forth years ago Mm -hmm. and made the complaint, but I don't think they would have necessarily gotten the same death threats and and so forth. Not that I'm suggesting that it would have been easy for anyone. And and that's the thing that that someone had asked me before. They said, would you have been interested in this if you wouldn't have had all the trappings of this woman who has a witch museum and a dungeon and all this other stuff? And I said, absolutely. Because I think ultimately what's at the core of this story, and like you were saying, if there was a First Amendment loving Christian, which there are, then it, it still would have been important because to me, it's about someone's right to go into their county commission and complain. And when we have the day in this country when we can no longer complain to our elected officials, then we're in serious trouble. And to me, this showed that that's what the problem was, that this person, regardless of what their background was, regardless of what they believed or didn't believe, went in and complained. And their county commission said, sorry, but you don't qualify on our qualifying list of people we want to hear from. Goodbye. Then we have then we have trouble. Well, Rob, if the founding fathers though had meant that to be a right, they would have put something like you would have had a right to petition for a redress of grievances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I don't think I buy that line. Yeah. And of course, really, the the selling point for this story is that it actually happened on State Street. I mean, that really that had to have been a major factor. Did you rename the the, the the street in order to make the movie? No, it actually everything does happen on State Street. State Street is the main drag through town. Does it turn into Church Street after a certain point? <laughs> there, I, I was trying to find if on the map if there was a Church Street that crossed, but I don't think oh, they have one in town. It's, it's too much to ask. But the, the courthouse is on State Street. Ananka's shop is on State Street. Wow. All of the main drag of everything is all on State Street. So it's, you know, the... The, the whole story is separation of church and state issue, and it's about the separation on State Street. For our local listeners, they're going to have a chance this week yep. to see your movie. Yeah, yep. We're going to have a screening at what's called the Micro Cinema. It's a fine little arts space over on um, in the downtown area. It's at uh, 470 Market Southwest here in Grand Rapids. Five bucks to get in. Come check it out. Saturday, December 1st at 8 p.m., Nice. Great. Be sure to support Rob and independent film, I suppose you could say, handmade film even. That's why I call it handmade film because it's uh, it's below the underground. It's below <laughs> sub-underground. <laughs> sub but, but that it's, doesn't mean it's bad no, quality. No, it's still a really good movie. And if you want to check out yourself, uh, you have trailers up in yep. YouTube and your website. That's right. Which is? No Saint, K-N-O-W-S-A-I-N-T dot com is my website and uh, on YouTube it's uh, youtube.com forward slash K-N-O-W-S-A-I-N-T No Saint Awesome Well thank you very much for uh, joining us on the show today and telling us about your movie and for making the movie There's plenty of people out there today who are fighting the good fight for skepticism and secularism. We, of course, want to give props to those who are working hard in those areas. Of course, there's a lot of people who are worthy of our scorn as well. And so each week we have the shit list. So we're going to start off on a positive note. Um, yeah, there's an article in this week's Time magazine, the December 3rd issue, on Sunday School for Atheists. So uh, the subtitle is An Oxymoron? Nope, Nonbelievers Need Places to Teach Their Kids Values Too. This is familiar probably to many in the free thinking humanistic community, but it might be news 
to the rest of the country that there are people who are not uh, non-religious out there that are making an attempt to instill values to their kids by having things like weekly, I guess you'd call it Sunday school for atheists in that they, instead of God issues and religious doctrine, they talk about things like how to establish ethics and how to establish empathy for other people and do critical thinking. They also mention Camp Quest, who, uh, which mm-hmm. is probably familiar also to many free-thinking people as a place where kids can go uh, to do a summer camp. But again, they teach things like critical thinking, history, historical figures like uh, uh, the movements of rationalism through, the, through history. So I think it's a interesting trend in that it's waited for them to show that they are interested in values and ethics, mm-hmm. and they're not just sitting home, want, you know, sleeping on Sunday morning, and they're, they're the parents want their kids to know about things, but in a non-religious context. Well, I have uh, another made-up religion on my shit list today, uh, the Church of Scientology. Actually, I suppose I more have in mind for the shit list a group out of Utah called Utah Meth Cops Project. No, this is not police officers on meth. Uh, These are police officers who have gone in to break up meth labs. That sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm all for that. Okay. But these cops, in the course of this line of work, they've come into contact with many toxic chemicals, many cancer-causing agents. And where the Church of Scientology comes into all of this Let me read from the article here from religionnewsblog.com, which we will have posted to our website. They say, the Utah Meth Cops Project is treating about a dozen former and current police officers at the taxpayer's expense using a regime devised by Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard at Bio-Cleansing Centers of America facility in Orem, Utah. State Attorney General Mark Shirtleff brought the project west after seeing it used to treat emergency workers in New York who were injured working at Ground Zero following the September 11th attacks. As is stated by Raymond Harbison, a professor of environmental and occupational health at University of South Florida, there is no demonstrated efficacy or effectiveness for that protocol. That is, there's no demonstration that the protocol speeds the release of substances associated with meth labs from one's body. But apparently, the state attorney general, Mark Shirtleff, doesn't have a problem with this. He's quoted in the article as saying, anecdotal stories to me is enough. I mean, cops (laughs) who say they couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without stopping to breathe now can, Shirtleff said. Uh, Yeah. uh. That's pretty good evidence (laughs) is what he says. But we want more scientific evidence mostly to assist the study in Utah uh, that there is a causal connection. Uh, So so we need more evidence uh, not to discover whether or not it's effective but to prove what he's already convinced is. The treatment then involves – it involves things like purging – toxins from the system by doing uh, <laughs> like saunas and sweat baths while you're doing exercises and uh, you oh. take certain uh, They take a vitamin cocktail, vitamins. B3 or niacin, and 20 to 25 minutes stretching in a 160-degree sauna for nearly uh, – for a nearly four-hour period to help the body release toxins. I have another treatment that produces anecdotal uh, benefits in, in that you start hitting yourself on the head with a hammer. Uh, what this produces <laughs> nice. is when you're done with that, you feel so much better that you stop the hammer treatment. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't come with a personality test. <laughs> to get your engrams tested. Yes. <laughs> so how does Xenu the Galactic Warlord fit into Scientology's uh, toxin purging treatment? Well, for that, you need to pay a whopping uh, how many thousand dollars to the Church of Scientology. We're not just giving that information out to anybody. Right. Uh, yeah. Added to this anecdotal evidence... Just take a whiff of these cops, the article says. <laughs> here, here again from the article, one of the people who's undergone this treatment says, whoever the skeptical people are, they should come here and sh- just take a whiff of the odors that we're putting off, <laughs> Acosta said. Yeah, I can smell the bullshit from here. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we normally smell this way. Of course, he's referring to what he believes are the toxins coming out from this process, wow. not necessarily the stretching in a 160-degree sauna. Science uh, is awesome. You would, <laughs> But again, our buddy at University of 
Florida says it's unlikely that the men are sweating out chemicals they were exposed to days, months, or even years ago in the meth lab. Quote, you would not expect the chemicals that are associated with meth labs to stay in your body for that long a period of time. But, you know, you, who are you going to trust, the scientist or the whiff you got of the of the cops? You did say their odor smells like cat urine, and I wondered, have my cats been exposed to toxin? If they smell like cat urine? Good point. I want to get that checked out. Um, but uh, can cats be a member of the Church of Scientology? As long as they purge their, their negative cat engrams, you know, the, well, in their mind. Anyways, I don't care what kind of alternative remedies people want to get into. That's not my not my business. However, there is an additional $140,000 of state money to try to take care of this for what was admittedly just based on anecdotal evidence. And they're also getting additional private money from the Church of Scientology, of course, who wants, wants to use this to promote their image. And really, there's, there's no excuse for that. We need to start cracking down on our elected officials. We need to start having evidence-based treatment, not uh, BS religious cures. To be fair, we should allow Scientology an opportunity to respond. So could we have next week Tom Cruise on the podcast? <laughs> John Travolta? I'm sure we'll be getting a subpoena any day now for our <laughs> lawsuit. So I'm sure they'll get a chance to respond. That's it for today's episode. However, you won't have to wait until next week to discover more reasonable doubts. I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.doubtcast.org. We have additional commentary, some religious humor, as well as daily links to news articles and websites of skeptical interest. Also, thank you to some people out there. This is only our fifth episode right now, but I've been really encouraged by how much feedback we've been getting as of lately. A lot of you have given email pats on the back to us, encouraging us and giving us advice of what we might do to make the show even better, and I hope... People continue to send those in. We're very encouraged by them. And we're also, we've even had religious people write in very respectfully who say they've enjoyed the show and wanted to offer some respectful challenges. And we certainly hope that continues too. Also, thank you to those of you who wrote very generous reviews for us on iTunes. That means an awful lot. So we hope everybody continues to spread the word about this podcast and that you guys will take a part in it by emailing us your questions and comments. Again, thank you so much. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Thank you.